Well, it's good to see you guys this weekend. This is the sixth weekend of our series that we're calling Seven, and we are dealing with the seven deadly sins. And, and these are sins that we have a tendency to just kind of tolerate in our lives. And as a result, we don't really struggle with them. We don't even try. It's like everybody deals with it. It's just something it is. It's just part of life. And uh, it's really getting ready to get real now because this weekend we're talking about the sin of lust. And I'm just going to tell you, this is a touchy topic. I get it. And I realize that over the next few minutes, some of you, it's going to take everything you have within you not to just get up and leave. But I want you to know what I'm giving you and sharing with you is, is coming from a place of love that this is God's word. I didn't write this thing. God wrote it. My job is just to, to share it with you. You have to decide what you're going to do with it. So we're going to deal with this topic of lust. And I know right, some of you ladies are thinking right now is, yeah, you let those sleazy men have it. But the reality is... Uh, we live in a culture where this is no longer just, just a man thing. I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, somebody bought 125 million copies of Fifty Shades of Grey, and I don't think it was the men, okay? So, in fact, I have a, lady, a friend that, uh, she's a friend of my wife's accent, but we were talking one night, we were together with couples, and she mentioned that some of her, her and her girlfriends went to the movie to see Magic Mike. And I'm like, oh, isn't that a movie about male strippers? And she said, well, yeah, but we went for the dancing. I mean, yeah, and we go to Hooters for the wings too, just so you know, you never bought that one either, right? Right. But it's not just a man thing. It, I mean, it, this is just the culture we live in. And, and, you know, we always think of lust, by the way, as a negative thing. It's not always, it's not always a negative thing. There's actually, there's actually good lust. And I mean that because the Greek word, I know you love the Greek word, sorry, is epithemia. That's the Greek word in the New Testament that's translated lust. And it's always translated, epithemia, it's always translated lust, except in about three places. One of those places, Paul uses this word in Philippians chapter two, verse uh, three, when he talked about his desire to go to heaven. When he said, I desire to depart and go to Christ, that word desire is the exact same word, epithemia, that's translated lust in other places in the Bible. Jesus actually used this word when he talked about the Last Supper. You remember what he said? I desire to have this meal with you. It's the exact same word, epithemia, always translated lust, but here it's used in a good way. So what I don't want you to understand is the word epithemia, at the root of this word is the word passion. It simply just means to have a passion for something. It could be you have a car, but you have a passion for a different car. Or you have a house, you have a passion for a different house. Or you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you have a passion for a different boyfriend or girlfriend. But that's the word. But my point is simply this. God created you and me with passion. And if you were here the first week of the series, I said these seven deadly sins, basically they are all rooted in good gifts that God gave us from above. But we decide to take them outside the boundaries, we color outside the line, and that's when they become a, a problem. So we can be passionate about God. We should be passionate about God. We should be passionate about our spouse. We should be passionate about our family. We should be passionate about our neighbors. The Bible teaches us we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. But when Satan turns our passion toward people for the wrong reason, then it becomes lust. So this weekend, what I really wanna do is set it up this way. 
I want to talk about the battle that goes on between lust and purity. And I want to talk about the upside of living a life of moral purity and the downside of a sexual impure life. And we're really talking about sexual immorality. And, and, a lot of, and I hate that I even have to say this in church. You would think we would get this by, by now. But a lot of arguments people use, love to use and uh, Jesus gets blamed for it. It's like, I don't think there's anything wrong with it because Jesus never said it was wrong. Jesus never used those exact words. Well, understand, let me give you a biblical definition for sexual immorality. It's any sex outside the context of a husband and wife in a marriage relationship. That's the way the Bible defines sexual immorality. Anything outside of that would be a sin. And so would, you say, well, Jesus never said this. Jesus never mentioned that. Jesus talked about sexual immorality all the time. So you just got to understand that's what we're talking about. But I want to show you from the life of Joseph how this kind of played out. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 39. If not, we're going to put the verses up on the screen. But it begins, if you know the background, remember a few weeks ago, we actually talked about Joseph. He was one of 12 sons. Uh, he was daddy's favorite. He got the coat of many colors. The brothers got sick of him being the, you know, daddy's pet. And so they sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt in the house of a guy named Potiphar, where he is now a slave. And says in verse six of Genesis 39, Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. In other words, when he met Joseph, he thought, this is a guy I can trust. This is a young man I can trust. And Joseph is about 17 at this point in his life. When jo with Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now look at this, Joseph was well-built and handsome, okay? So he's like an Old Testament magic, Mike. We got one right here in the Bible. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. And I promise you that was not to take a nap, right? But he refused and said, with me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. In other words, no one has more responsibility than I do. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. In case you forgot, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing? And here's the three key, key words, sin against God. This is not a cultural issue. This is not a social issue. This is a sin issue. How could I do this and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. So think David, you know, I mean, Joseph, he's, he's got his little feather duster and he's dusting the furniture and he's doing his thing, right? And she caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. And this coincides, remember Paul wrote a letter to a young man that he was mentoring named Timothy. And that letter ended up in the Bible as 2 Timothy. And this is what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. He says, flee from youthful lust. Flee from youthful lust. In other words, when you find yourself in the danger zone, when you're in a situation, there's something going inside of you going, danger, danger, danger. Don't there, sit there and think, hmm, I wonder if this is dangerous. Don't sit around and analyze the situation Paul said, you need to flee, you need to run. Don't flirt with it. Don't see how close you can get to the line without going over. Don't see how close you can get to the flame without getting burned. Because of what's at stake, you need to flee. You need to run. You need to get the heck out of Dodge because if you go there, there are going to be some serious consequences. So I wanna show you some of the consequences that are connected with lust and immorality. And uh, this, is the, this, is, this, is, this is an incredible impact it can have on every person's life. And let me tell you why this is so relevant. Forget what's going on in culture. Let me tell you what's going on in church. We just had 98 couples that went through our premarital class to get married here at Hope, which means they want a pastor to marry them. 98 couples. 
98 couples, every one of them said, I'm a Christian. 73% of them said, we're already having sex. Or 73 of the couples said, we're already having sex. 75 of the couples said, we're living together. So two of you couples are lying. But anyway, uh, uh, that's a whole other, that's, that's another sin. But anyway, that's inside the church. Okay, that's inside the church. Okay, so let's talk about this. It's a relevant subject. Stick with me. I'm going to have to hit on some things you're not going to like, but you have to process it on your own. Here's the first thing you need to know about lust. It impacts your family. And I want to expose a lie that a lot of people believe when it comes to the, the idea of lust and immorality. And remember this, a few months ago, we did a series called Living Free, and we talked about our lives are transformed by the renewing of our minds. You remember that? And we said that you, you renew your mind the same way you renew a piece of furniture or a hardwood floor. You got to take off the old, you got to put on the new. So how do you renew your minds? You have to identify the lies that you've lived by that have shaped your life, your actions, your behavior. Some of them you get from culture. Some of them you get from your friends. Some of them you get from your family. Some of them you even maybe get from religion. But you've bought into these lies that it's okay. You've got to identify those lies and see if they line up with what God's word teaches. And if they don't line up with what God's word teaches, you've got to get rid of the old. You've got to get rid of the lie. And you've got to replace it with the truth of God's word. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 32. And then the truth will set you free. And we sang about this earlier. Who the son sets free is free indeed, Right? So if you want to be free, you got to have your mind renewed. You got to, if you want your life transformed, you've got to begin to think differently. How do I bring my life into alignment with the word of God? So here's a lie that most people believe. Most people believe that as long as they don't cross the line and actually physically have sex, that there are no repercussions. There are no consequences to their behavior. But you got to understand when the Bible talks about sin, the Bible talks about an inward motivation, but it also talks about an outward action. For example, and you're familiar with this word, one of the words that the Bible uses for sin over and over again is the word transgression. It means action. The Hebrew word literally means to step over a boundary. Uh, the English equivalent would be to trespass. So when we trespass or when we transgress, we step over a boundary. We cross a line. It's an, it's an actual action. But there's also a second word that the Bible uses to refer to sin, and the word is iniquity. And an iniquity is an inward motivation towards sin. It's not an action, but it's an inward motivation. But understand, it's still sin. For example, and we'll see this later on from the words of mouth of Jesus, lust in our heart is an iniquity. But sexual immorality, any sex outside the, the, the commitment of a husband and wife in a married relationship would fall into the category of a transgression. In other words, you've crossed the line. But understand, from God's perspective, they're both sins and they're equally bad. Now, one may carry different consequences. You may lust in your heart and that may not carry the consequences of following through on lust and getting you shot, you know, by somebody's angry husband, right? But they're both sin from God's perspective. But a lot of people think that as long as you don't cross the line, there aren't any consequences. But this is what's interesting. The Bible doesn't say that the transgressions are the actions, the outward actions of the father are passed down to the children to the third or fourth generation. It doesn't say that. It says that the iniquities, in other words, the inward thoughts, the inward motivations of the father are passed down to the children, to the third or fourth generation. I'll show you the verse, Deuteronomy chapter five, verse nine. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity, the inward motivation of the father upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. In other words, this is what God is saying. If it's in your heart, if it's an iniquity, it's going to affect your family. So right away we learn you cannot tolerate lust in your heart. So that's something we need to know. Here's the second thing. Lust affects your faith. 
It's going to affect your relationship with God, your walk with God. Here's, here's a question that I have literally been asked thousands of times by, by young couples. And, you know, when the church was smaller, I used to do all the weddings, you know, and I did, so I did all the premarital counseling myself in my office. And so there was always a question I asked a couple when they came in for premarital counseling. The question was this, are you having sex? And if they said yes, I would say, okay, if you want me to marry you, here's the deal. I need you to make a commitment to me and to God that you're not going to have sex anymore until you get married. Okay, draw the line in the sand. You can't unring the bell. God is gracious. God forgives. But let's draw the line in the sand. Let's move forward. If they would agree to that, I'd marry them. If they didn't agree to them, I didn't marry them, right? But I'll never forget one time I had a couple come. And I, and I knew this couple because her dad, the girl's dad was an elder. So I'm thinking, I just got to ask if this is just a formality, right? And so I said, are you guys having sex? And she went, And then he went, and then she said, uh, we would prefer not to answer that question. I said, well, I'm going to take that as a yes. I'm going to take that as a yes. But here's the question that I have been asked thousands of times. Okay. If we love each other and we're going to get married anyway, what difference does a piece of paper make? Anybody ever asked you that question? What difference does a piece of paper make? And I used to come up with answers where, you know, one day you're going to have children and, and they're going to be 14, 15, 16, and they're going to want to extor- begin to explore their sexuality. And you want to be able to say, you know, mom and dad, we made a mistake before we got married, but we realized it was wrong and we changed our behavior and da, 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 da. Stupid answer. Wrong answer. That's not the right answer. What difference does a piece of paper make? And the answer to that question is none. The marriage license makes no difference. It's God's blessing on your life that makes the difference. That's the issue. Do you want God's blessing on your life or not? And I've described it this way before. Think of, think of the Christian life like a circle. And inside that circle are God's principles, his precepts, his truths, the things he wants us to do, the things he doesn't want us to be involved in, right? And he says, if you live within this circle of my perfect will for your life, you've positioned yourself to be blessable. If you feel like you're smarter than me, God says, and you want to do your own thing, then you're outside the circle and you're on your own. So the reality comes down is that not, it's not the piece of paper. It's like, do you want God to bless your marriage? Do you want God to bless your kids, your health, your finances, your family, your job? Do you want God? So God says, do not have sex outside the marriage of a husband and wife. And now listen, when God tells us something like that, when God says, don't do this, I want you to understand something. And it took me a while to understand this myself. It's not that God doesn't want us to have fun. It's not that God's a prude. It's not that God's an old fuddy-duddy. It's because God says, I created you. I know you inside and out. I know what you can handle and what you can't handle. And I don't want you to screw up your life. It's the same way when we tell our kids, don't play in the street. We don't say don't play in the street because we don't want them to have any fun. We say don't play in the street because we want you to live long enough to actually be able to enjoy life, right? And so in the very same way, God says, don't go there. Flee youthful lust. Flee sexual immorality. And when he says it, you got to understand, there are actually several reasons. One, it is emotionally damaging if you're not mature enough and ready for it. And you're not ready for it till you get married. In fact, uh, we, we send most of our counseling out. Uh, we, our pastors at Hope, we live in a crazy day and age where you can just get sued by looking wrong. So we we are like a clearinghouse. If you come to us for counseling, we're probably going to pay for you to go to a Christian counselor and let them deal with you. But they actually probably know more what they're doing than we do anyway. But when we used to do more counseling, and especially with, with, with girls and, and young ladies, 
you know, some guy would fall in love. We're going to get married. I'm here for you for life, right? And so they would begin this relationship, and then the in relationship would end, and, and the girls would be devastated, and we would hear the words, I feel, like this, I feel used, I feel deceived, I feel betrayed. So God's like, don't even go there. Let me protect you from that. Let me protect you from that. Here's another one. And I know this is, this is going to touch on a nerve, and, 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 and it's, God forgives everything. God forgives everything. But it's in the media so much right now, I've got to address it. It's the issue of abortion. And I'll tell you why we have to say something. Part of the problem with our culture is the church is, is sits around with its head. You know why we're still fighting racism? Because the church never just stood up and said, whoa, 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 whoa. Something's wrong here. Paul talks in Galatians, there's Jews, there's Greeks, there's Scythians, there's slaves, there's male, there's female, all together worshiping together. What's the problem here? Church just ignored it. And, and to this day, it hasn't been dealt with because the church didn't do its job. And now, good gracious, you know, once you do away with absolutes and you realize that God creates life, but we don't care, it would get on a slippery slope. And I mean, one day we're going to be able to, you know, abort kids up till six years old. I mean, I mean, where, where, where does it stop? But here's, here's what I want you to understand. Because see, we buy into the lie. Half of a percent of abortions are the result of a sexual assault. Less than 1% of abortions have to do with the health of a mom. Less than 3% have to do with the health of a fetus. 85% of abortions are from single women. And you know what? God forgives everything. And you know, we have, I, I have several women on my staff that have had abortions. It's not the unpardonable sin, right? But what I've discovered in, in talking with some of these young ladies is often they have such a hard time forgiving themselves. And God's like, let me save you from that. Don't put yourself in that situation, right? But here's the biggest reason. All sexual immorality, all sexual immorality opens the door to numerous sins in our life. Sins like deception, manipulation, lying. For example, you say, if you're involved in sexual behavior before you're married, you learn how to lie. You learn how to be deceptive. And so it's gonna affect your relationship with your family. It's going to affect your relationships. I mean, you're probably not going to tell your friends that a crusade or young life that, hey, you know, we're, we're disobeying God in this area. It's going to affect your relationship with God. I mean, if you're a young couple and you're dating, you know, you don't usually share with your parents, yeah, mom, dad, we're sexually active. You don't do that, right? Your parents don't say, hey, what are you guys doing tonight? Oh, we're going to sneak around somewhere and find a place to have sex. Okay, be home by 11. So it, does, it, does, it doesn't go like that, right? What do you do? Hey, what are you guys doing? You lie about where you're going. You lie about what you're going to do. When you get home, you lie about where you went. You lie about what you did. You lie to your friends, right? You lie to everybody. My point is, you learn how to be deceptive, and you even learn how to be deceptive with God. Because you can show up in church or pay a lot of money to go to a passion conference and raise your hands. Oh, God, I love you so much. You're so awesome. You're the best God in the world. And it doesn't even cross your mind that you're involved in something with someone that is a sin against God. But not only that, it affects your marriage. Let me tell you what happens. When you sneak around to have sex, you develop an appetite that God never intended for you to develop. And it's because when you sneak around, you, you actually get an adrenaline rush from the sneaking. I mean, it's, it's fun to sneak. It's thrilling to sneak. It's kind of something exciting about sneaking around. But here's the problem. Once you get married, you don't have to sneak around anymore. And this is what happens. I'm actually finishing up a book on marriage and family and parenting. And, 
and I talk about the four stages of marriage. The first stage is just bliss. It's like, oh, this is never going to end. It's always going to be wonderful like this. Okay, that's the first stage. Good luck with that. And then second stage is what I call the reality stage. And the reality stage usually hits somewhere around 18 to 24 months. And this is when you wake up one morning and you look over at the person you married, right? And their hair's all messed, but bad head, and they're drooling. And, you know, you married him. He looked like, you know, Ryan Gosling. Now he looks like Larry the Cable Guy. And she looked like Jessica Alba. Now she's Rosie O'Donnell. And you're like, what the heck happened, you know? And, you know, and. But here's the thing. Here's the bigger problem. It's like, wow. Marriage has kind of gotten boring. Kind of gotten to be a rut. There's no more sizzle in the marriage. It's because, see, what happened is you created an appetite before you got married that God never intended for you to have. By the way, let me just say this. This appetite goes both ways. Without a doubt, for men, it's sex. But you know what it is for you ladies? It's romance. And we deal with just as many women who want to get divorced because their romantic needs aren't being met as men who would say their sexual needs aren't being met. So you got to understand it goes, it goes both ways. Uh, you may have asked yourself, why in the world would a woman have an affair with some guy who's nowhere near as smart or as handsome as maybe her husband? I'm telling you, nine times out of ten, it's because she found someone who gave her personal attention, someone who romanced her. And part of this, I'm just going to be honest. I told you I'm going to probably offend some of you today, but that, I'm not trying to, but it's because you, you set up unrealistic expectations about romance. You watch The Bachelor. You read stupid novels. You spend too much time watching Lifetime, you know, a Hallmark or wherever those crazy movies are. And you're like, why isn't my marriage like that? Why aren't we acting like that? Why aren't, why aren't we feeling like that? Something's wrong with our marriage. In fact, I actually had a lady sit in my office after 25 years of marriage. And she says, he's been a wonderful husband. He treats me like a princess, but you know, that spark's just not there. So while I still think I'm attractive enough, I want to cut my losses and give it another shot. I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you, right? I had some thoughts, but I can't share them with you because I'm a pastor. But, uh, <laughs> but let me tell you something. And, I, and, and again, I, I just, marriage isn't about love. It's not about romance. It's not about sex. It's not even about your happiness. In fact, I told the men, I told the men at men's night, God created marriage to kill you. <laughs> and if that didn't do it, he gave you children. But, my, but my point is, until you're, until you're ready to die to yourself, see, until you're ready to be committed for the rest of your life, because that's what marriage is about, is commitment. Unless you, until you're saying, I'm ready to be committed for the rest of my life, don't get married. Don't get married. So understand, both men and women can create an appetite that God never intended for us to create. And this is what happens. This is why your husband will have a conversation with the woman at work. And he'll sense something. So he may begin to flirt just a little, but do you know what's happening? He's getting an adrenaline rush because he's fulfilling an appetite that he actually created with you before you got married. And then eventually that flirting grows and it turns into an affair. But what happens? To have an affair, what do you have to do? You've got to be deceptive. You gotta sneak around. And so he is satisfying the appetite that the two of you created together before you ever got married. And now as he's having sex with this other person, this new person, guess what? He begins to feel the sizzle that he used to have with you before he married you. 
And he associates that feeling, he associates that sizzle with love, and so he begins to believe, oh, I love her, I don't love you. And this is how the cycle works. He will divorce you and marry her. But now what happens? He doesn't have to sneak around anymore. And so about 24, 36 months in, he'll say to her, it's just not the same, see? And that's why some of you, and again, I'm, Please understand this is coming from a, I don't like, I'd rather talk about money than this stuff. And I know the hate mail I get when I talk about money. So this is why some of you have been married three or four times. I'm just, I'm just telling you, you are trying to satisfy an appetite that God never intended for you to have. And so that's why God said, flee youthful lust. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee sexual immorality. He was saying there's some huge downsides to this. And maybe you're feeling, oh, you're feeling guilty. I don't want you to feel guilty. But you're feeling guilty because maybe you're having sex and you're not married. Or maybe you're married and you had sex. You're like, oh, no, what's going to happen now? What do we do? You treat it like any other sin. How do you treat any other sin? You confess it and you repent. What does confess mean? Confess means this. I agree with God. I know what I've been doing my own way, but now I agree with God. That's confession. God, I agree with you. You got it right. I didn't. Repent means you do a 180. That literally in the Greek is what it means. You, you, you turn around and you head in the other direction. So you stop the behavior you're doing and you head in the opposite direction. But I'm telling you, you want to close that door. And when you do that, see, you're renewing your mind. And when you renew your mind, your life is going to change because I'm telling you, you don't want to leave any door open in your marriage that's going to allow Satan to come into your marriage and get a stronghold and set up shop. So shut the door. Now let me just say this. Some of you after the service are going to have, you're going to, you're going to you're think, this is what some of you are thinking right now, and it's probably ladies because you have more of a conscience than men. I'm just being honest in this area. You're like, you're going to go home and tell your fiance or your boyfriend, like, oh, we got to, we got to, we got to, we got to drop, we got to stop. We got to do this the right way. And he's going to manipulate you. And he's going to guilt you. And he's going to threaten you. And if he does, you kick his butt to the curb. Yeah, amen. amen. That's the first amen I got all weekend. Bam, I'm out. Drop my mic. But I'm going to tell you right. He's showing his true colors. He's telling you right there, I'm not going to be the godly leader in the home. In fact, the very thing you give into to make him happy will be the very thing that eventually will destroy your marriage. So I'm telling you, lust affects your family, it affects your relationship with God, it affects your marriage. Here's the third one, it affects your future. My guess is this is what Satan was telling Joseph. Wow, Joseph, look at you. You went from being daddy's favorite, you are slave in Egypt. It's Potiphar's wife. Go for it. You don't have a future, what do you got to lose? I mean, your brothers, you know, they screwed up God's plan for your life. So let me give you a clear statement here. There's only one person that can ruin God's plan for your life, and that's you. In other words, the only person that can prevent God from doing what God wants to do in your life is you by making the wrong choices. Now, let me clarify something. I am not saying that if you sin, I am not saying that if you screwed up, that you can never experience God's plan for your life, because if that were the case, you wouldn't have a pastor. In fact, if that were the case, none of us would have a chance. We've all screwed up. Thankfully, 1 John 1, 9 is still in the Bible. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But I'm telling you what, I'm just being honest. 
if you continue to just ignore and disobey God, you will not fulfill God's plan and destiny for your life. So it affects your family, your faith, your future. So what's the answer? I mean, this is lust. Everybody, oh, what's the answer? This is, this is so simple. This is going to remind you that I'm a P major. This is so simple. I'm embarrassed to say it. Here's point number four. Acknowledge lust begins in the eyes. A lot of people say lust begins in the heart. Mm-mm. It begins in the eyes. Go back to Genesis 39, verse six. Joseph was well-built and handsome. After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph. See, she's, look, she's checking him out, right? And she said, come to bed with me. Now, let me ask you a question. Why did Potiphar's wife have lust in her heart? It's because she noticed, she looked. So here's the application, ready? Don't look at attractive people. (laughs) All right, let's pray. You think we got that? Okay. That's deep stuff right there. (laughs) You got to train yourself not to look. Because if you don't look, you won't lust. But it's how you look that's the issue. Let's go to Matthew 5. Jesus is going to back me up on this one. Matthew 5, 28. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman. Now, let me just say, men are going to look at women. It's the way God wired us. It's the way we created. I mean, read any of James Dobson's book. You know, what wives wish their husbands knew about. I mean, read any of those books. It's just the way we are. It's the way we're wired. We can, our mind can change immediately by sight. Some of, some of us, it's a bigger issue than others, but it's just, it's just the way, it's just the way we are. In fact, did you know there was a sect of religious leaders in the first century when Jesus was around? They were known as the bruised and bleeding ones because they looked at the ground when they walked, because they took this literally, don't ever look at a woman. They're walking in the trees, they're walking in the size of houses, backs of camels, right? And so they were the bruised and bleeding ones. But see, you got to look at this. Anyone who looks at a woman, how? Lustfully. Oh, that's different. See, now it goes to intent. Intent. What are you thinking at while you're looking at the woman? Has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But notice the progression. You look, you lust, adultery. You look, you lust, sexual immorality. So if you don't want to commit adultery or sexual immorality, don't let lust in your heart. And if you don't want lust in your heart, be careful what you look at. Be careful how you look. I heard Billy Graham one time say, it's not the first look it gets you, it's the second look. And I, I used that one time in a message and there was a guy in the atrium who said, pastor, I heard you. It's the second look that gets you. From now on, I'm gonna just take one really long look. First long. I'm like, no, 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 that's, my, that's not my point. But that's how the screwed up people I deal with here at home, right? But my point is this. Looking, looking empowers, maybe that's the best way to say it. Looking empowers lust. So be careful how you look, intent. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of sight. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. It begins with the eyes. This is what Job said in Job 31 verse one. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. So think of it this way. We all have things that we we deal with. As we've gone through this series, see, anger is not a big deal for me. I mean, I'm just, it's just not, but it's the way God made me. You can, you can hurt me really, really bad and say, man, I'm sorry. And I'm like, oh, cool. You don't go to lunch. I mean, that's just, it's just, that's the way I'm wired. Now there's other things I really struggle with, but one of these that, that may really be your Achilles is this area of lust. So think of it this way. For some of you think of an alcoholic can't take one drink. 
Can't take one drink. So for some of you, you have to be really, really careful where you go and where you look at. You can't even take one look because it's gonna stir up lust inside of you. So you have to become accountable in this area. And uh, let, me, let me tell you what has helped me and Laura, Laura over the years. You know, we were married 22 and 19, and uh, we saved ourselves from marriage and, and all that stuff, but that didn't mean that I didn't have issues that other young men didn't have. So I sat down and I, I talked to Laura about this struggle in my life years ago. So this would be my, my advice to you. Uh, tell your wife about your struggle. Because this is what happens. When you do that, you get to struggle together. But for that to happen, ladies, let me just tell you, you, you can't be going crazy on him. I mean, if your husband or fiance or boyfriend says, man, I, I just want to be honest with you, I messed up and I looked at porn. Uh, you, you can't, you can't, con- I understand, yeah, you're probably going to be hurt and stuff. But you got to understand, you, you, can't, you, you, you can't go all crazy, okay? Because it's, it's not love that your husband or boyfriend or fiance has a problem with, it's lust. Okay. Lust is never love. See, if lust, I say Potiphar's wife didn't love Joseph. If she loved Joseph, because you know the story, she falsely accused him when he ran out of the house. Oh, he tried to attack me. And he falsely accused that in prison for 13 years. She didn't try to get him out. She didn't love him. She wouldn't have let him sit in prison. Right. I had a lady come up to me last night after the service. Yeah. And her husband had died a couple years ago and I actually did the funeral. And she said, I finally started going through some stuff in the attic and garage. And she said, I found a big Tupperware bin of pornography. I had no idea. And she was devastated. And she said, your message, your message helped me because it helped me realize lust is never love. See, let me tell you something. If the man in your life discusses this with you, Understand, and I know this is hard, I, I, but understand, this is a weakness for him. He's not saying he doesn't love you. He's saying, I have an unhealthy appetite that I never should have developed, but we need to deal with it. I need to deal with it. And I tried to think of a good analogy, and I, I couldn't really even think of one that doesn't have, I can't think of one for you ladies that would have the emotional, but I think you'll understand what I'm saying. Say you had a, a shopping addiction, okay? But you had it under control. But you, you know, that's, and I know people, and that's what they do. They, when they get stressed out or they get depressed, they just go shopping, whether they have the money or not. So let's say that you went out one day and you just ran up the credit cards. You went to Crabtree and just had a blast, right? But then your husband came home or your, and you told him, he said, I've been, I've been really good for six months, but I went out today and this is what I did. I, I promise you, your husband would not interpret that she doesn't love me. He would interpret that There's an unhealthy appetite here that we got to deal with. So if you can see the difference, you create an environment where your husband can now talk to you and say, I should have never developed this, but I want to deal with it. And I want us to go through this struggle. See, that's a big difference, right? And then you got to put some things in place. For example, I've told you before, I never, ever travel by myself. Never. Never. I'd never stay in a hotel room by myself, ever. And part of it's a lot of reasons. Uh, one is, Laura never has to worry about me. I don't have to worry about me. 
you don't have to worry about me. But that, you know, that actually costs the church some money for that to be a reality because my preference would be Laura travel with me, but she can't always travel with me. And so usually my default guy's Gary Vett, you know, so when I got to travel, like I have to go down to Orlando in a couple of days and speak at a conference and come on, Gary, going to Orlando because Laura can't go. And, and uh, I'd rather travel with Laura because Gary scares me a little bit because he's got lots of guns. And uh, in fact, and I'm all about guns. I don't care about guns, whether you have guns or not. I think it's a great amendment. But um, um, we were driving to Virginia. I had to go to Virginia to speak to a group of pastors. And so we're driving up to Virginia and I'm driving. He said, hey, don't worry, I got a couple guns with me. I'm like, how bad are these pastors? I mean, they're pastors, you know? And I said, why do you have two guns? He said, well, one has a safety, one doesn't. I'm okay, all right. So we get to our hotel in Virginia and he takes both guns and lays them on the nightstand right between our beds. And uh, one of those point like one right at my pillow. And I'm like, I'm like, Gary, I said, which one of those doesn't have a safety? Because if that phone rings in the middle of the night and you grab that gun instead of the phone, you know, I blow my head off, right? And so I, I prefer Laura, but you know, sometimes most of it, but, but it's a check system. It's a check system. Laura doesn't have to worry about it. What's he in a hotel watching? Is he doing something? He's, well, it's, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's for me. It's for her. It's for you. Now, I understand if you work at Cisco SAS, they're probably not going to pay for somebody to travel with you, right? But if you're in a hotel alone and you're struggling, what would be ideal would be you be able to pick up the phone and call your wife and say, honey, I'm struggling. Let's talk a little bit. Let's pray a little bit. See, because see, when you do that, you struggle together. And some of you are thinking, I could never tell my wife. But honestly, men, if you can't, it's probably on you. It may be some on her, but maybe you've broken down some trust and this is an area where you've got to continue to work and rebuild the trust so that you can do that. That would be a healthy marriage, by the way. But if you can't, you at least got to find a man in your life that you feel comfortable saying, hey, can I, can I FaceTime you? I'm struggling right now. I need somebody to talk to. I just need to refocus on something. I, I need somebody to pray with me. But, but you got to do that. You got to do that. By the way, you're wondering how your wife will respond? Laura and I, we were actually laughing. We can laugh about this now. But when I, when I shared, you know, my struggle in this area with Laura, I wasn't really sure what her response was going to be. I mean, we were young. We, were, we didn't know anything. We were trying to figure marriage out. Do you know what she said when I finished? She looked at me and she said, I knew you were bad when I married you. That's what she said. I knew you were bad. I didn't expect you to be perfect. That doesn't shock me, right? So it gave us a chance to work on that together. So remember, Satan works in darkness. And if your husband is struggling in this area, if your fiance is struggling in this area, if your boy, listen, don't, don't put him in a place where he has to work in darkness. Make, make sure the best of your ability, he feels comfortable bringing it into the light. So, by the way, the other thing Laura knows she has the permission and power to do is, is to hold me accountable. And, and let's be honest, men, most of us, most of us have a problem when it comes to, to looking at other women. As I said, we're kind of wired our ways. By the way, just so you know, your wife already knows that. So when, when Laura sees me looking, she'll say, don't look. Don't look. Because she doesn't know what's in, I could be, I could be saying, man, I really like her hair. But Laura doesn't really care. She's saying, let's just stop it right there. Don't look. Now, sometimes it doesn't work well because one time, 
we were in Hawaii, it was for our anniversary, and I am engrossed. I don't read much, uh, like, uh, just fun books. Like, I love Jack Reacher novels because he beats up the bad guys and good guys always win the end. But I'm in Hawaii and I'm reading a Jack Reacher novel and I'm entrenched, man. I am like, because those are like, I can read them in a day. I don't even want to put them down. So I'm reading my novel. We're sitting in Hawaii by the pool. And as I'm reading, she says, don't look. And I went. <laughs> I swear, as a woman wearing dental floss, right there walking, walking. I'm like, honey, work on your timing. Now I can't stop looking. You know what I mean? That's, right? So we're, we're still trying to figure that out, but. I, and I, want, I wanted to end with that, because honestly, this, this, is a, this, is a, uh, this is a heavy stress. It's a heavy uh, subject. And it's not just a men and women's uh, issue. I had a one woman walk up to me one time after church out into the portico. She's Pastor Mike, I need to talk to somebody. I said, okay. What's going on? She says, she said, I think I have a porn addiction. Oh, okay. Let's get you the right person, right? And thankfully, we have a host of Christian women counselors that we were able to get her to. So again, I know people struggle in this area. I want you to know it's okay to struggle, right? But let's struggle together. The problem is, is when we quit struggling. The problem is when we say, you know what? It is what it is. I'm just not that big a deal. No, no. It's okay to struggle, but let's struggle together. And that's how we defeat these things. See, that's how we're reminded that Satan no longer has dominion over us. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Father, thank you for loving us. And thank you for allowing us to love one another. But sometimes Satan gets involved and things get askewed and life gets ugly. That's a big issue. Billboards and magazines and TV and movies and beaches and everywhere we go. And unless we want to go hide in a cave somewhere in a mountain, it's something we're going to have to learn to struggle with and struggle through. Help us never stop struggling. Help us to continue to be, seek purity to be the people that you've called us to be and work in our hearts. And I pray that maybe as some conversations are going to be held today that they would be bathed in your grace and mercy. Remind us that mercy always triumphs over judgment. Always. And that's how you treated us. And we thank you for what you're going to do in your name, we pray. Amen.